welcome to River Writers. This is Marianne Monson, the president of the Astoria Writers Guild, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to the literary arts in the Astoria region. Today, I'm thrilled to have in the studio with me author Brenda Cardenas, whose brand new poetry book, Trace, just came out. And she is a professor of creative writing and Latinx studies at University of Milwaukee. Brenda, welcome to the studio. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. It's great to have you. So just for those who may not know, we um, at the Writers Guild were really thrilled to bring Brenda to town for as part of the El Dia de los Muertos celebration in our community with El Centro Northwest. And um, and Brenda's going to be reading on stage for us uh, at the Larson Performing Arts Center. And Brenda, this is your first time, I think, on the North Oregon coast. Is that right? Yes, d- definitely. And it's so gorgeous. Oh, good. I'm glad that you're getting some a little bit of dry weather here and there. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So happy to be here. So tell us where you normally are in the world. I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, and so I'm. we actually had snow on Halloween. Wow. <laughs> so I live in a place that is cold and snowy um, about six months out of the year. <laughs> but it, it's a it's a great city. I mean, there's a lot going on there. Um, just as there is here, we have, you know, pretty much happening in the arts for being a town known for its beer. <laughs> <laughs> we can relate to that. We like the arts and we like <laughs> our beer. So um, so you are a poet and you're a professor and you're married to a poet and a visual artist. Yes. So very involved in the arts communities. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's wonderful. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, like where you grew up and how you came to poetry? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did grow up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I live now. I, I did live in other places, but then returned to Milwaukee. I'm, as an adult, I lived in other places. I grew up on the south side of Milwaukee, um, uh, not far from where... My father and his parents had lived um, in Milwaukee, which is the what we call the barrio, right? The the Mexican American um, uh, community, and my grandparents actually had the first store in the city that sold uh, Mexican and Puerto Rican food products, mm. um, along with American food products. A little tiny store, um, and my grandfather worked the tanneries and. Um, the rest of my family, my father and, and uncles, they did all kinds of different labor. But it was a very working class family, um, d- drove trucks, uh, did, um, you know, worked in factories, um, all, all of that kind of work. Um, and, um, um, yeah, I actually grew up in the house I'm living in now. My aunt and uncle owned it. Um my aunt is Mexican, was Mexican-American, and she married a man from Yugoslavia, what was then Yugoslavia, <laughs> and they bought this house, and my mother and father rented from them the upper flat. So I grew up hearing Spanish, English, and little bits of Slovenian and German all kind of mixed together. Um, and how did I get into writing? I started writing I when I was just a little girl, you know, um, 
I don't know that maybe I was 10, 11, 12 years old, and I would sit in a closet with a flashlight on top of my mother's shoes and write these like little stories and poems. And I think um, I did that because I didn't want my brothers to see me writing um, because my brothers would have made fun of me and said, what are you doing? Get out and play hoops, you know, (laughs) instead of of sitting there writing. (laughs) So I hid. Um, And I was lucky enough in high school that there was a creative writing class and uh, I had some wonderful literature teachers. And although it wasn't very diverse, um, I at least I came to love, fell in love with poetry um, in my literature classes and got to try writing it in high school. And then when I went to undergrad, I um, to college, I also took creative writing. I thought I was going to be a journalist at first. And then I took my first journalism class and hated it mm-hmm. <laughs> and realized that wasn't the kind of writing I wanted to do. And um, so I... I went to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where I teach now for undergrad, actually, and um, started taking creative writing classes there. And, and from there, it's just been one long, happy party of writing. Since starting <laughs> off in the closet with the shoes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I can just see you there. Um, and what a rich language background, right? Mm-hmm. To have all those different languages around you. I think the way that children experience language is so just fresh and creative and playful. And I would imagine with all of those different languages, it just made it even more vibrant and exciting. Yeah, I think so. And I would mimic all of them. I would mimic all their different accents when I was a kid and yeah. would, you know, you know, certain words that they used all the time in Spanish. Of course, I used those. And then they were all wanted. Of course, back then, they were very concerned. It was a different world then. We didn't have bilingual education. And um, parents were very concerned that their children learn English so that they could survive and get jobs. And so it was, you know, I would say if there were was a dominant language, it was English, but there was always Spanish mixed into it. And then, like I said, my other, my uncle, my uncle with his Slovenian, and then he was learning Spanish too. So my aunt and uncle nicknamed me Cacahuate Mantequilla Princess Red Cheeks, <laughs> which Cacahuate Mantequilla would be like peanut butter, but but it would we would probably say Mantequilla de Cacahuate, right? But they just translated it directly cacahuate mantequilla and then and it was my uncle the slovenian who nicknamed me <laughs> not the mexicans in the household That's so funny because i always stuck my finger in the peanut butter jar mm-hmm. so <laughs> yeah. that's amazing i love that so you know i think um many people who grow up around a lot of languages do not necessarily retain all of those languages into adulthood. Was there ever a question of you holding on to both Spanish as well as English? Oh sure. I mean I do think that I um my my Spanish is a Spanish of the home, right? And so it's uh my English I'm I wouldn't want to give a, a very academic theoretical lecture in Spanish. Yeah. You know, um, I, my, I'm educated in English, mm-hmm. right? So um, if I were doing something like that, I'd want to do it in English. But, um, and yeah, yeah. So the Spanish is broken and there's some words that I don't remember words that, you know, but, um, but I certainly can, certainly can make my way around yeah. right, in the language. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, the, my brothers didn't retain it. 
You know, oh, interesting. I, I have two brothers who hmm. pretty much let it go. Mm-hmm. I mean, they know so, certain words, but yeah. they, you know, they wouldn't be able to necessarily go uh, and speak uh, sentences. Right, right, right. right. Um, so, and, you know, my cousins, a, a few of them retained it and some of them didn't. Uh, and because we're third generation, it was grandparents who were the immigrants. Yeah. Um, and so the second generation were fully bilingual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in our generation is when people start to lose it. Yeah. But I was always interested. I never wa- I loved my grandparents' stories. They would tell us when I was a child. Um, and I just never, I never wanted to lose it. Yeah. So I made, I took some classes too, mm-hmm. to make sure I would, I could retain and mm-hmm. I could uh, maybe use a little bit more proper grammar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Know? Even though I mess that up sometimes, but yeah. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And, you know, I I saw you today working with students at Seaside Middle School and the bilingual students there, many of them felt so, I don't know, it seemed like they were very excited to have you there as a bilingual person talking about growing up with uh, both languages in your home and how it's impacted your work professionally as a poet who uses both languages actively. So I think it gives you a really neat point of relation with um, other bilingual children. And there's a lot of them in the United States now. So, yes. yeah. So um, I would love to maybe have you read one of your poems that uses both languages so our listeners can get a sense of of how you do that I think uh yeah why don't we why don't we start there how about that yeah I I thought I would read a poem that is um also works with well with the El Dia de los Muertos holiday and this poem um maybe has a little more English than Spanish but it has Spanish in it as well um and it also has the Nahuatl word Zakwan Papalotos or Zakwan Papolotos, which are the um Marnark, it's Marnark butterfly is mm. what it means. Um, because the Mexica people of Mexico believed that when we die, um, our souls return as Marnark butterflies. And just to clarify for listeners, that's an indigenous language of Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Nahuatl mm-hmm. is the indigenous language of the Mexica, mm-hmm. and the Mexica are people that are commonly referred to as Aztec. Mm-hmm. But Aztec really was an empire, not the name of a tribal group. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've tried to be correct and use, you know, Mexica is actually where we get Mexico from. So cool. Um, yeah. yeah. So... Um, this is Zacuan Papalotos, and it's, it was written in memory of Jose Antonio Burciaga, a wonderful, wonderful Chicano writer um, who lived from 1947 to 1996. And I, I have a little quote from him, epigraph at the beginning of the poem. He said, we are chameleons, we become chameleon. Mm. We are space between the black-orange blur of a million monarchs on their two-generation migration south to fur-crowned Michoacan, where tree trunks will sprout feathers, a forest of paper-thin wings. Our Mexica, cocooned in the membranes de la Madre Tierra, say we are reborn, Zacuan Papalotos, mariposas negras y anaranjadas, in whose sweep the dead whisper. We are between. The flicker of a chameleon's tail that turns his desert blue backbone to jade or pink sand. 
the snake-skinned, fraternal twins of solstice and equinox. The ashen dawn, silvering dusk, la oracion as it leaves the lips, the tug from sleep, the glide into dreams that husk our mestizo memory. We are one life passing through the prism of all others, gathering color and song, sempasuchil and drum, to leave a rhythm scattered on the wind, dust tinting the tips of fingers as we slip into our new light. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Can you tell the title of that poem again? Zakwan Papalotos. Okay. And this is from your collection, Boomerang. Boomerang, my yeah. first book. Your first mm-hmm. book. Yeah, that was just gorgeous. Thank you. I think that was a perfect poem to really give our listeners a taste of your work and what we're talking about when we're talking about how you use both languages in this really rich way where the sounds of both languages are enhancing enhancing each other and um you know poetry is always very closely and finely attuned to sounds of language i think that's really mm-hmm. one of the most basic definitions of what poetry is but i love how when you are approaching a piece of poetry as a bilingual poet you have the ability to reach for the sounds in both of these languages and so it becomes so layered and nuanced and um, I just really love all of that. Thank you so much for noticing that and you're so right that people will ask me a lot of times why do you mix the two languages and I say well part of it is because that's my first language was Spanglish. (laughs) But it, but and because people really do that, but but it's not only for that reason. There's also the craft of you can get an interlingual rhyme, mm. or you can get like a, this interlingual alliteration, right? Because yes, we traffic as poets in sound, um, in sound and in image mostly, uh, and you know um, the musicality, the internal music of a poem is so much an important part of it. So I love being able to reach for the sounds in in more than one language. Yeah. Yeah, because it, the word may directly translate to something else, but that doesn't mean the sounds translate, which I have always thought would be like an incredibly difficult aspect of attempting to translate mm-hmm. poets, you know, from one language to another, poems, poetry, from one language to another. I think trans, I can't imagine any more difficult task, actually. <laughs> exactly. I, I yeah. so admire those who do it. I mm-hmm. know my husband and I were thinking about taking on such a project, and we might still... But it is because you're always losing something. You're either losing the exact meaning or you're losing that musicality. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's a trick to decide what you're going to favor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and also, you know, in any language, English included, right, words have so many connotations. They have so many layers and nuances. And you can never really, I mean, really translating, you can't really ever do that. So there's this wonderful little couple of lines from this poet, Francisco X. Alarcón. He said, un beso is not a kiss. (laughs) (laughs) I just love, love that. 
Yes. And of course, the translation, if you look up Casas uh-huh. Beso, yeah. but it, like there's a way in Spanish that it has certain emotional connotations, right? Yeah. Uh, passion mm-hmm. that to the person who's going to say Beso, yeah. it doesn't have an the word kiss right yeah. right yeah. i love that uh-huh. yeah that's that's beautiful um and i wrote down the line la oración as it leaves the lips mm. and so la oración is the prayer mm. in spanish but it is not the prayer it's la oración uh-huh. <laughs> as it leaves the lips but i love just kind of that descent into english and the weaving together of mm. it so you know i'm curious what you think about um, to listeners who don't know Spanish and who maybe find themselves feeling a little bit disoriented or unsure when they come across a word that they're not familiar with, what would your advice be to them? Well, my advice would be, and sometimes I will say to an audience, if you don't understand the Spanish, just dance. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What I mean by that is enjoy the sounds. Enjoy yeah. the because I listen to poems in languages I don't speak mm-hmm. and I still can enjoy the 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 music, the rhythms, you know. Um but also Spanish is so accessible mm-hmm. that you can look it up so easily. Now you have it all at your fingertips in the, you know, computer. Um so you don't have to go to the library, you don't need a big fat heavy dictionary, but you can just go into Google and you can get you can translate it. Also some of it will come, you'll you'll kind of know through context because, you know, to some degree I contextualize the Spanish. So through the parts of the poems that are in English, you'll, you'll get that. Um, and I also write a lot of poems purely in English. So in, if you were to sit down with a whole book of mine, there would be plenty of poems without a Spanish word in them, you know, that would be accessible to a monolingual English reader. Um, and then there are the ones in there that do mix that do mix the languages. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you are just tuning in, this is Marianne Monson, and this is River Writers, and uh, produced by the Writers Guild of Astoria. And today I'm talking with author and poet and professor Brenda Cardenas. So, um, you know, that idea of how like if someone is solely a, an English speaker or I so, suppose solely a Spanish speaker, how to kind of approach a bilingual poem where you might feel disoriented or unsure because you don't feel, you know, facility with both language, uh, with both languages. I think too, when I'm having that experience, one thing I do is I, I put myself, I remind myself that for a lot of people in this country, that is their experience on a daily basis, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and not just in this country, in, in, in any country where people travel and move across language barriers, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, I think it can help create empathy for this is somebody else's experience. I also think that it harkens back to our earliest experiences with language because that is exactly how we first experience language as, as babies, right? Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, you're just as a child taking in these magical words that you don't have any context for. And most of us don't really remember it, but one, one memory that I have that seems related is I just remember looking at this book on the shelf, like, and it said the scarlet letter. And I would just sit there and imagine, Imagine like 
why was the letter scarlet? You know, <laughs> the letter, taking it literally as this letter that like someone would send to someone. But it's just that wonder, you know, that children have mm. when they approach language and they don't have context. They don't have meaning. All they have is the sounds, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of a like a beautiful thing about being exposed to an, a language. If you can kind of let yourself go into that place you know yeah and I like I love how you said the interlingual poem or translingual poem it's the same thing for a monolingual uh, reader in Spanish mm-hmm. right there mm-hmm. the English words to them are what the Spanish words to somebody monolingual so I would you know give them the same advice and um, uh, yeah I, I I'm glad that you glad that you mentioned that there was some, another thought that came to me as you were speaking, but now it fled my head. <laughs> if it comes back to you, yeah. you can just jump mm-hmm. in and throw it in. But, um, you know, I think I'm really curious about your writing process. Can you tell us a little bit about that, especially with do you? Yeah, I would love to know how you navigate the two languages. And do you ever decide to, oh, I think I like that word better in English or in Spanish and switch it back or? Uh, yes, yeah. yes, for sure. And or, you know, I'm definitely and I don't sometimes I use all different processes to write, but I love word banks. I just love them because when you create a word bank, you you're starting with language rather than starting with some preconceived notion of what a poem is going to be about. And the poem emerges from these words and you start writing or I start writing something I would have never, ever thought to write about if I hadn't started with that word bank. So sometimes I'll have a word bank that that includes both Spanish and English words. Um, sometimes the word bank is, you know, just English words or just Spanish words. It depends on, I don't know, what I feel like doing that day. And I also work with a writing group um, and we we get together every Friday morning on Zoom and we write together and we we create a communal word bank what we, we do is we, it's all women and we're all over the country and we um, start with a poem that somebody brings, a, a, a poem that's been published somewhere that somebody brings that they really like and that they're interested in not only for what the poem says, but for what the poet is doing as a craftsperson. And we read that together. We talk about it. What is this poem doing? And we look at several different possibilities then for prompts for our own writing from that. But before we start writing on our own, we make a word bank, a communal word bank. And some of the words that be put, are put in there are words that are coming from the conversation we had just prior. Other words are just like our favorite words for their sounds or for their meanings. And we do it on a Google Doc so that you can see everybody else's words being popped into this, like a grid, like a table, just like you see your own, you see everybody's popping in there. And then we all turn off our sound, we turn off our pictures, and we go away and we each write for a half an hour. And then we come back together and we share. And I have written some of my favorite poems using that method again because these are poems I wouldn't have written otherwise Mm -hmm. um and so uh, several poems in trace came from writing with that group or they started there wow so we've got a lot of writers who listen to this program and so I just want to clarify 
two of the wonderful ideas you just threw out. So one is um, that you belong to a writing group that is different than a lot of writing groups because you're not necessarily critiquing each other's work. It's a generative writing group, it's right? It's a generative writing group. And so all of the women in it, we came together because another woman and I, during the pandemic, who are good friends, she's in New York City, she called me one day and said, hey, you know, I did this one thing once. Would you be interested in doing this? She described this process that I just described. And I was about to go on sabbatical. And I said, you bet. I'm with, I'm there. And then she invited a couple more and I invited somebody and pretty, we, then we had a five. Now we've grown to 15. Wow. So we really can't even add anybody anymore. And they, everybody doesn't come every week. So that makes it possible mm -hmm. for everybody to share. If everybody came, we, yeah. you know, we'd be on there forever and mm -hmm. everybody has jobs and right. <laughs> right. But, um, yes. So it, but I love that. that. And I think that might be helpful to, to some people because, I don't know. It's just quite different. And I think it's a great idea to have a group of supportive other writers and you're coming together for the purpose of setting space aside in your lives to make writing happen right now. Mm -hmm. So that's really exciting. And I also just want to clarify about the word banks and how you do that. So you might say, like, can you tell, walk us through a little bit more closely about how, like, you would approach, okay, I want to create a word bank of what? Like, what kind of word bank do I want to create for a specific poem? Okay, so, well, it would be different for a specific poem, but then okay. I can do that. But yeah. in this group, uh -huh. we, we started, the very first time we did it, we all put in, we each put in 10 words that we loved the meaning of and 10 words we loved the sound of, hmm. right? So you could just... That it could just be that way. Now they're coming more organically. They're, they're coming from, some of the words are coming from the conversation and the poem that we read just prior. And some of the words are still just coming from, I love this word, right? Or I just learned this word new, something like that. And so they're, they're kind of randomly being put in there. But you, if you knew you wanted to write about some, a general kind of, there was a general theme in mind, um, like, for example, today I did a workshop on ekphrasis, writing in response to visual art. So if you were writing a poem in response to a particular painting, I would make a word bank that was just like all the words that come to mind when I look at that particular painting. So what about the color? What about the texture? What about the shapes? What about, you know, um, anything I might know about the artist? What what words relate to the emotions that it evokes in me? What, you know, and that's what I'd fill my word bank with. You know, if you know you want to write something about, um, Let's say you read a news headline. A lot of poems come from news headlines. We read something, we see a story. And, you know, maybe you pull some words out of that article and plop them in your word bank. And, and then some are your own words that, uh, that are associated with that, you know. But if you, but I mean, I kind of like the random ones because that's what ends up in a poem that you would never have, you would never have come up with that phrase yeah, that's the surprise element. And, you know, Jericho Brown often will take lines of poems that he's written, separate poems, and then he'll cut them up and then mix them all up. Mm -hmm. And he taught, I mean, it's, it's very similar to what you're describing here to and helps bring in that element of, um, oh, I would never have thought of mm -hmm. that, but also it works, you know? I've done what he does sometimes in the revision process. So uh -huh. I've taken a poem that I've written that I'm not 
I, something about it just doesn't feel right yet. Uh-huh. And, and I've cut it apart yeah. and then remixed it yeah. and then realized what, oh, this is what I should do with this poem. Yeah. I, I love all of the different ways that we can find to play with language and trick our mind, these like tools, you know, to help to help make the magic happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's so many ways to go about it. Well, Brenda, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. And I just want to end with saying that your new book, Trace, is out with Red Hen Press. And congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah. And there's several poems in there that just have some lovely connections, I think, to this area. Forests and fishing and a lot about El Dia de los Muertos, too. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's just been such a pleasure to have you in our community. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on River Writers. This is Marianne Monson for the Writers Guild of Astoria. Until next time, keep your pencils sharp and the words flowing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>